Tomorrow is Easter. Um, we're here to tell you that uh, Jesus is alive. Amen? He's alive. Get excited about it. He is, he is alive. And he's living here with us, his people. And he's living here with you because you're part of his people. And he's living here with you because he wants to be available to help us. And he's revealing himself to others through you. In spite of the fact that many believers live life like he's not alive, like he's not here, like he's still in the tomb, that he's still dead and buried, and he's not available and he's not active today. So we need to make a decision. Do we believe he's alive or, and therefore live like he's alive and available and here today? Or do we just have a mental assent to the fact that he's alive but don't live like it? And so I just wanted to start by saying he is alive. And because he lives, there's a whole pile of things we need to begin to consider about his life, our life with him. And so I'm going to play a song that uh, everybody knows. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
So your piece of paper, follow the scriptures. This is from Matthew chapter 28, and it's the whole chapter, and it's one that you will know. After the Sabbath ended at the first light of dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to take a look at the tomb. And suddenly the earth shook violently beneath their feet as the angel of the Lord Jehovah descended from heaven. Lightning flashed around him, and his robe was dazzling white. And the guards were stunned and terrified, lying motionless like dead men. Then the angel walked up to the tomb, rolled away the stone, and sat on top of it. And the women were breathless and terrified until the angel said to them, There's no reason to be afraid. I know you're here looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen victoriously, just as he said. Come inside the tomb. See the place where our Lord was lying. Then run and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. I give you his message. I'm going ahead of you in Galilee, and you will see me there. They rushed quickly to tell his disciples, and their hearts were deep in wonder and filled with great joy. Along the way, Jesus suddenly appeared in front of them and said, Rejoice! They were so overwhelmed by seeing him that they bowed down and grasped his feet in adoring worship. And then Jesus said to them, Throw off all your fears. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They will find me there. After the women left the tomb, a few of the guards went into Jerusalem and told the chief priests everything they had seen and heard. So the chief priests called a meeting with all the religious leaders and came up with a plan. They bribed the guards with a large sum of money and told them, Tell everyone, while we were asleep, his disciples came at night and stole his body. If Pilate finds out about this, don't worry. We'll make sure you don't get blamed. So they took the money and did what they were told. That is why the story of the guards is still circulated among the Jews to this day. Meanwhile, the eleven disciples heard the wonderful news from the women and left for Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had arranged to meet them. The moment they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still had lingering doubts. Then Jesus came close to them and said, All authority of the universe has been given to me. Now go in my authority, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you, and never forget that I am with you every day, even to the completion of this age. I picked a version you probably didn't know. But if you're listening, you'll find out that that's an amazing story because we have an amazing God. Amen? Amen. And he is not dead. The problem with the story is it loses its touch or its impact because we know it so well. And we don't take time to ponder what it's really saying to us because we're all kind of busy. And even with the extra day or two off at Easter, we fill it with family, yard work, whatever. Um, it quickly fills up with all the spring things to do. Um, I spent this morning talking to somebody beating a rug to death on the fence. Uh, <laughs> and uh, didn't get a chance to talk about Jesus, but we're doing spring cleaning. And that's what we're filling the weekends with. And so we don't really ponder the scriptures. So I've been reading that scripture all week. And I've noticed the number of people who are involved in the story. 
Um, from the slightly insignificant to the central figures of the story, there can be a minimum of 18 people and a maximum of over 60 involved in that one story. And so I want to take a look at them. Um, the first person involved, if we can call him a person, is an angel. And he comes and he's certain about his task and he's certain about his message. And he's bold in his proclamation. He doesn't have to guess what he has to say. He basically says he is not here. The living are not found among the dead. And um, he was powerful. He rolled a stone away. This is the stone. And this is a, actually a good picture of what a tombstone would look like in that day. The hole for the cave that they use for the tomb is almost high enough for you to walk through without having to bow down to, to bend your head and the stone is actually cut out and it works along a groove at the bottom of the grave and it's um, angled so that it's at its height up there and its depth is down here so all you gotta do is let go of a little peg they put in it and it will roll itself down and cover up the hole Rolling it the other way is uphill, and that will take three to five men. So the angel comes and rolls the stone away by himself. That's powerful. And then a little cocky. The cocky is a word that means confident and bold and cheeky way. He sits on top of the stone. There was no need for that. He's just doing it to show off. And that's okay, because when God's alive, you can show off. Amen? Yes. That stone would be five to six feet in diameter and anywhere up to a foot and a half thick. So you've got to know it's a heavy stone. And um, when the Lord was placed in there, they would just pull the peg and it would roll across. And uh, so that angel was one very powerful angel. Amen? I like this guy, whoever he was. So, okay. And he was different because his clothing were white. The second one was the guards that were there. Um, this is a normal picture. You would see the picture of the tomb with two or three guards, which is totally stupid because the Bible never tells us how many guards there were. But if they followed normal Roman protocol, like they did in the book of Acts when they arrested Peter and so on, there would be a minimum of four, and they would take turns two on, two off, or a minimum of 16, and they would take turns four on and 12 off, and they would just rotate. And so there's no way there was just two guards there. And um, the Jewish leaders also sent guards um, the guards, if you noted, went back in the, in the scripture, they went back to the chief priests. Well, the Roman guards, if they went to report, would go back to the governor of the Roman Empire for that district, for that province. So the guards that were going back to the chief priest were the temple guards that the Jewish high priest had sent. And so there's this whole mishmash of Romans and Jewish guards overseeing so that no one could rob the tomb. So the response of the non-believers in Jesus was that they were stunned, they were terrified, and they were fearful of dying at the hands of an angel. Interesting, though, that after the event and the women and the angel had all left, they might have become believers because they weren't with their eyes shut. Their minds were working. They saw what the angel was doing. They heard what the angel said. They saw what was taking place. And so when they go back... 
um, they would know the truth. Except that they were deceived by their religion and bought out so that they wouldn't tell the truth. And then you have the women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. If you remember correctly, Mary Magdalene was a prostitute that had many demons that Jesus had cast out of her. The other Mary is the mother of Jacob and Joseph, according to Mark 16, verse 1. But if you read another version, the Gospel of Luke, mother of Jesus was also there. So there were three Marys at the tomb, and there was a fourth woman called Joanna, and we don't know who she was related to. So there's four women. Please note, no men. Four women came to deal with the body of Jesus. I don't know where all the men were hiding, but... And their reactions were the following. They were determined. They came to anoint the body in spite of the stone door. There's no way four ladies could push that thing up the hill. They were breathless because what they were seeing was more than expected. They were terrified until the angel spoke to them in verse 5. They were full of wonder or deep in wonder. They were filled with great joy and rejoicing. In fact, Jesus told them to rejoice. They were overwhelmed by the whole thing. They were still, still fearful. They were amazed and awestruck when they saw the resurrected Jesus. And they did probably what we would do, which was fall at his feet and worship. If you could get some words out, maybe. Um, they were obedient. They did as the angel said. They were bold. As women, they were not supposed to be the ones carrying a message to the men. And they were certain that what they had seen was real and that what they had experienced was life-changing. The 11 disciples, on the other hand, <laughs> were hiding. But when they heard the message, they were amazed. It's interesting. He no longer called them disciples, and he no longer called them friends. He called them brothers. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and they will find me there. Because now you could become a member of the family of God, because Jesus has died and rose from the dead. And he indicates that they're brothers now. They were obedient. They went to Galilee to meet with him as requested, but they were not all sold out to him. Please note, they weren't all convinced about all that had happened, because in verse 17, it said the moment they saw him, they worshipped him, but some still had lingering doubts. It's okay to have doubts. So there was a variety or a mixture of responses when you read the story. And there's even more if you read the story in the other Gospels. So my question to you would be, what was your resurrection reaction? Like the guards who saw, mostly likely believed, but were, were persuaded not to follow him? Are you more like the women who believed and who followed wholeheartedly and in amazement? Maybe you're like the disciples who had their doubts and their deep concerns and you're not sure what you believe or where you're going with it. So who do you relate to other than the angel? You're not allowed to relate to him. You can't be like him. They look so good in white. I know. <laughs> <laughs> now the other person that you really have to relate to is, and it's a very poor picture, but Jesus. Jesus was victorious. He's risen from the dead and he's back to life. In fact, it says in verse 6, he has risen victoriously. I like that word. He is a radiant in, apparent, in appearance, not always immediately recognized because of that. 
Remember the guys on the road to do Emmaus, um, the two disciples, they did not recognize him. He was powerfully present. When he was noticed, he was powerfully present. He was fulfilled. His task was complete. Jesus was bold, certain, confident, specific, determined, focused, and in control. All authority in the universe, I like that version, has been given to me. And he was empowering. He gave power to his disciples to complete the task. Go into all the world and make disciples. Okay? Or do what he did, which was seek and save the lost, Luke 19.10. So Jesus, just being raised from the dead, moved forward with his plan in spite of the disciples having doubts and concerns. Nothing stops him. He has a plan. He's going to fulfill it. You can either join him or you can be left behind. So this guy comes across strong, confident, bold, specific, focused, determined, I don't know why people don't want to follow him. You want a strong leader, he's it. But I noticed something else. There was this word that kept coming up called suddenly. Suddenly the earth shook violently beneath their feet as the angel of the Lord Jehovah descended from heaven. Along the way, as the women were leaving the tomb, suddenly, Jesus suddenly appeared in front of them. God has a habit of doing things suddenly. God was doing the unexpected. He was doing things quickly and without prior notice. He has a game plan that we don't know. And so he was moving forward regardless. He was allowing them to experience new things, things beyond their understanding. And he was working way beyond their desires and expectations. They didn't. Um, this was a whole new ball game, and they had no understanding of what it was all about, even though he tried to teach them. That's why Isaiah says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Well, you might not if you're not following the right guy. In another version it reads, For I am about to do something new. See, I have already begun. Do you not see it? Message version, Be alert. Be present, be engaged. I'm about to do something brand new. It's busting out. Don't you see it? There it is. And then the New Century Version, look at the new thing I am going to do. It's already happening. Don't you see it? Isn't that amazing? There's this suddenness about God. And he does it, and then you notice it. He doesn't give you advance notice that in two weeks from now it's going to happen. Because if he did that, you'd be ready for it. If I told you two weeks from today there was going to be a tornado come through, you'd be ready for it. But God doesn't work that way. On the road to Emmaus, if you read the story, suddenly their eyes were opened and they noticed who it really was that was talking to them. Okay. So today, for those of us who think this story is familiar when we missed it, I think there's a number of things we need to note. Number one, he's alive. And so we can live in the power of his resurrection. Number two, we can live in the kingdom and experience kingdom life. We've talked about that before. 
So he is alive and we can live in the power of his resurrection because the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, Paul said to Timothy. Secondly, we can live in the kingdom and experience kingdom life. Thirdly, there's no reason to live in fear or with fear. Isn't that what he said? I think he did. He said, throw away all your fears in verse 5 and verse 10. Ready? Number four, Jesus is as close to you as you want him to be. Because it says, then Jesus came close to them. You want to hold him at arm's length? He'll stay at arm's length. You want to follow him at a distance? You can follow him at a distance. You might lose sight of him, but... Number five, Jesus is not leaving us. He's always with each one of us. And he said that in verse, chapter 28, verse 20. And he said, never forget that I'm with you every day, even to the completion of this age. What was number three? Yeah. Number three, but there's no reason to live in fear or with fear. Okay, and number six, because Jesus rose from the dead as he said he would, then nothing is impossible for him to accomplish and do today. And then, of course, I found my favorite verses, Matthew chapter 19. What seems impossible to you is never impossible to God. And then in Luke 1, he says to Mary, No, not one promise from God is empty of power, for nothing is impossible with God. In Luke 18, what appears humanly impossible is more than possible with God, for God can do what man cannot. And do it a lot quicker, by the way. And then if you are able to believe, all things are possible to the believer. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that nothing is impossible to God? Because I think in my life, at least, I can't speak for you, I put limits on God. Sometimes things seem too big or out of his place of authority or away from what he's planning to do or nothing's too big for God nothing's too hard nothing's too difficult nothing's too small nothing is impossible I don't know what you but I tend to forget that so I want to live in that because that's part of what Easter is all about if God can raise his son from the dead that's kind of a biggie most of what we're asking him to do is pretty small compared to that if he can get you into heaven, in spite of the way we live, <laughs> that, that's got the two big ones down pat. So let's start believing. So there's a song that's...
nothing is impossible. Jesus has given us two things he's asked us to do. First thing he called us to do is to make disciples. Now go in my authority and make disciples of all nations. There are over almost 300 nations upon the planet right now, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to faithfully follow all that I have commanded you. And the word follow there means to keep or to guard. So carefully and, sorry, baptize them and careful and and teach them to faithfully keep or guard all that I have commanded you. And the word guard is like you're guarding a fortress. And so really you're defending the faith. You're guarding the fortress of truth. And that's what Jude says. Dearly loved friend, I was fully intending to write to you about our amazing salvation we all participate in, but felt the need instead to challenge you to vigorously defend and contend for the beliefs that we cherish or the faith that we have once received from the apostles. So that's your first of two tasks. The second one, sorry, the second one is that God gives each one of us a unique task to do. So you have the big task, generic, all nations, every person, 9.2 billion so far. And the second one is that you have a unique task to do that's connected to the big task, and it's connected to your abilities, but it's bigger than what your abilities are. It's connected to your skills, but it's greater than your skill set. It's connected to your talent, but at times totally outside of your area of talent. And it's connected to what you know, but it's beyond your knowledge. The part of your calling that is unique to you should be so big that if God does not show up, you fail. So the vision of what God is asking for you to do with him should scare you to death, to life. And if your vision doesn't scare you, it isn't big enough, and it isn't God. Because Jesus is alive and working in you. He's working with you, and he's working through you. And if we really believed that, we would have this vision of what God wants us to accomplish that would be beyond our abilities, our skills, our talents, our knowledge, And it's just time to stand up and believe that, that he's alive. And that makes a difference. So we don't have to live like everybody else. We don't have to be like all the other Christians. And we can move forward into this tremendous future and awesome adventure that God has for us. So if you're bored with your faith, you're missing it. There's something that we're not catching on. So in my life, I've been experiencing, I still don't quite know how to describe it, but a freshness, a new encounter with Jesus, and I've been journaling the journey, and I've been sharing it with you. So I talked to you about run, don't walk, don't obey what your mother told you when she said walk, don't run. And then I talked about experiencing the resurrection life that Paul talked to Timothy about. And then the last time it was seeking Jesus, that if you see the king, you will see the king Jesus if you seek him. And then today, because he lives. And as a result of that, I've made some new commitments based on the fact that Jesus is very much alive and I was living like he wasn't 
or maybe he was visiting occasionally, but not always actively involved in my life. And I decided that if I truly believe that he's been raised from the dead and that I am alive and he lives in me, that I'm going to do a number of things, and I don't think they're on the screen. Nope. First thing I decided was, that's because these are my decisions, that I'm going to attempt something new for me and something great for God. So I'm going to get a challenge, and I'll tell you about that in a couple of weeks' time, because it's well on its way. So I'm attempting something new that I've never done before, but it's also something great for God. Secondly, I'm going to remove any and all hindrances to my moving forward. So and that's what I'm calling a commitment. And I'm sorry, I made them all C's. Uh, the third one is I'm going to embrace that all he wants me to be, regardless of the cost and what others may think or say. Because to do what God wants you to do, you have to be who God wants you to be. So the being is before the doing. You've heard me teach that. And that means there's going to be a lot of change. The fourth thing I decided was that I will do what he has asked me to do, the generic, and equipped me to do the specific, but I will do it with zeal, with enthusiasm and expectancy. And those I talked about last time, and those are the things I've been missing. I have just been going through what I've been doing for 46 years. So I'm back with the zeal and the enthusiasm and the expectancy. And I'm going to, number five, I'm going to do everything necessary to live and walk in the power that raised Jesus from the dead. If that's, if scripture is really true, the New Testament is really true, I'm living way below my potential. You decide where you're living, but I am living way below my potential. And I'm pretty pissed off at it. And it's me I'm pissed off at. And that's not a phrase I use very often, but I learned it from my daughter. That's me. Second Christ. <laughs> 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are like common clay jars that carry this glorious treasure within, that's the life of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, so that the extraordinary overflow of power will be seen as God's, not ours. Well, I'm sorry, but I've not been living that way. But it's changed. Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that you will continually experience the immeasurable greatness of God's power made available to you through faith. Well, I have faith and I'm not being experiencing the immeasurable. I could measure what I've been experiencing. I want so much of it, I can't measure it. The words won't do it. Then your lives will be an advertisement of this immense power as it works through you. Isn't that interesting? Then your lives will be an advertisement that you didn't have to pay for, of this immense power as it works through you. This is the mighty power that was released when God raised Christ from the dead and exalted him to the place of highest honor, supreme authority in heaven. We've got to change something. It, that's what we should be living like. And that's because he lives. Our life should be different and more powerful. So, tomorrow's Easter. I don't know what you're going to do on Easter. I'm probably going to do yard work. But <laughs> if you're going to experience, you need to consider the resurrection of Jesus and all that resurrection means today. And I challenge you to sit down sometime this weekend and decide what difference his resurrection should be making in your life. It should make a difference in who you are. It should make a difference in how you live. It should make a difference in what you do to touch other people's lives for him. And in some ways, it should make a difference 
in what he's asking you to do and where he's asking you to stand tall. Join hands with other people, but stand tall and begin to work in the power of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. So one more song. If you're not tired of them yet, we'll turn the lights out. The words are on the back. <laughs> 